This episode of the Blue Skies Political Podcast deals with war, the Afghanistan war, the violence and suffering during and after this conflict. It may not be suitable if you're driving with children, and it may also bring up trauma for people that fought in that war. That's why they 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 just didn't want us to serve. They didn't want us to help Canadians or any other NATO forces people because they didn't want us to do that. So you know, it's it's just a kind of tribe was not a problem because I was speak the language. They always like when I was going outside to 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 translate between Canadians and local national. The local were like always abusing us and telling us like lots of bad words and stuff, you know, like they they were like, oh, you're you're not part of us and we will kill you. Welcome to the Blue Skies Political Podcast. I'm Aaron O'Toole, the Member of Parliament for Durham. Thank you for joining us today for another important topic. This touches on Canadian defence and military history, our foreign policy, and our compassion, showing support for refugees, people that are facing persecution around the world, particularly persecution because they served with Canada. Today, we're going to be talking about the left-behind interpreters and contractors in Afghanistan that were left behind and are waiting to come to Canada after Kabul fell and the Taliban regained control over that country. The war in Afghanistan for Canada represents the largest single mission in the history of the Canadian Armed Forces. Over 12 years, some of the hardest combat our country has seen since the Korean War in Kandahar province. We lost over 100 and 65 Canadians, soldiers, diplomats, citizens, and there's been a toll on the mental health and wellness of those who came home. We spent billions of dollars, we committed, yet there's some unfinished elements of our mission in Afghanistan. There are 7,000 people at least waiting to come to Canada. They have a G number, they are refugees, they are fleeing risk of death, injury, persecution, because of one thing. They served alongside Canada. In some cases, they wore a uniform and served in the field as interpreters with members of the Canadian Armed Forces. In other situations, they were contractors at our embassy. They escorted and worked with our aid workers, helping young girls attend school, helping build dams, helping with the quality of life. As a Canadian, as a veteran, I feel that Canada should never allow one person to be at risk because they stood by us for our interests or our values. So today we're going to tell the story of just one of those exceptional Afghans who has become part of the Canadian family. James Akam is 35. He lives in Burnaby, BC with his wife and their 11-year-old son. He came to Canada in 2016, with his wife and infant following a few months later. Since coming here, James has shown tremendous drive to use the opportunity of liberty here in Canada. He's worked in warehouses, worked in the logistics and grocery industry. He's been a truck driver. He's driven for Uber, thousands of trips. In fact, James told me he's always worked two jobs from the moment he's been able to work here in Canada. Living in Alberta for his first few years, James came on my radar when he was left behind and journalist Joe Warmington raised his case. And to the credit of John McCallum, then a new Canadian immigration minister, when I reached out and Joe Warmington and Canadian veterans reached out, the minister acted to bring James to Canada. And today we're going to talk a little bit of that story to personalize this. 7,000 people waiting to come to Canada with a G number. Every single one of them is a person with a story. And today we talk to one of my favorites, James. Welcome to the Blue Skies Political Podcast, James Akam. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me on here. 
It's great to have you. And after our many years of, of knowing of each other and, and, and me helping a little bit with your story in 2016, we finally got to meet a few months ago in BC and have lunch and talk. Um, you just seem so happy talking about your experience in Canada. What has it been like to come here and to be free of risks? What's it like for you and your family? Well, I mean, it's 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 really good feeling, you know, like once you you feel you are safe, your life is safe, your family is safe, your your kid is going to school and he's learning, you can see the way that you your kid growing up and and you you work hard for them. It's it's just it's a good feeling. So that's why I probably was seems a little bit happy, you know. I'm I'm enjoying my life in this free country, you know. Canada is one of those best countries that um, you know, it's it's always been step up for those who really uh, need helps, you know, like who was um, like, especially for a person like me, was a lot of opportunities for me to come to this country and, and, and build my life, you know, um, uh, after after having a lot hard time in Afghanistan. Yeah, well, listen, I wanted to start off with that, because I think a lot of us in this country take for granted uh, how lucky, how blessed, how fortunate we are as Canadians. And I'm fortunate to be reminded of it by people like yourself, by some of the refugees and, and new Canadians that I meet that are just overwhelmed with how much better their life is. So I wanted to start off on that positive note, James. But let's go back to the war. Let's go back to when you were 20, you know, just fresh out of working on one of the bases as a contractor for the United States, you started serving as an interpreter for the Canadian Armed Forces. You know, tell us about that experience. Where did you serve? And what was that service, you know, with our some of our soldiers on the front lines? What was that like? So I, I actually started working for Canadian Forces in 2007. I'm not sure exactly about like a specific date. I, I, I've been through a lot of, you know, things. So I'm not exactly sure the exact date, but it was, I'm sure it was 2007. So I started as an interpreter um, with the Canadian forces in Southern Afghanistan in Kandahar province. So my first day that I I, I got hired in the next week, I, I went to a fire base, which is they will call uh, Fob Wilson. Fob Wilson was located a few kilometers away from Kandahar Airport. So I I, I, I went to that fire base and, and I started my, my job with the Canadian forces. So I, I was usually translating between Canadian Armed Forces and Afghan National Army and, a, and also going outside with the alongside with the Canadian forces and Afghan army going outside to the to the fields for for petrol missions and and um, supplying and all those kind of stuff we were always going outside as well talking to local national as well so that's where I started and with a job as an interpreter you're helping the military unit operate with people on the ground, speaking the language. Um, who did you serve alongside? Do you remember the regiment and some of the soldiers? And um, did you need to know different dialects or or what languages helped you communicate uh, both uh, in your work with the military and it's helping to uh, educate the community on what the Canadians were doing? Who, who did you work with? What was the language? What was a typical day like? So the 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 people that i've been serving with there was a, a the major that they were calling him major watson he is currently he was from alberta and i i'm pretty sure he's currently in alberta as well um uh, and and the regiment was called uh, i think i i, I i've been talking to one of my friends he's in, here in vancouver his name is kurt mccall he was a canadian army uh, member Armed Forces member. So I, I was talking to him. I was like, which region was that we were uh, together? And he said a Scottish regiment, but I'm, I'm not sure as I, I have never been employed by by the army directly myself, but he was like a Scottish regiment, but he lives in Victoria. I'm, I'm not exactly sure about the units and, and regiments and all those, but um, 
yeah, Major Watson and Neil Dancer, a lot of other guys that I still have them on Facebook and I'm still in contact with them. So yeah. That's, yeah. And that's the Canadian Scottish regiment that's in Victoria. So about 30 to to 40% of our mission in Afghanistan were run by reservist regiments and reservists. So you would have been working with uh, the Canadian Scottish regiment uh, who it's a reserve regiment out of British Columbia and Fob Wilson, you know, forward operating base Wilson was named after a casualty, a Canadian that died, Mark Wilson. I've met his, his family. Um, so you were on the ground helping them get through the villages and helping them connect to the communities on the ground for explaining what the, the Canadians were doing, keeping civilians out of harm's way. Is that kind of what, what your job is? Yes, exactly. Of? We were usually going outside and we will also uh, train, uh, train, giving training to Afghan National Army uh, guys as well. And, uh, and we were also had another big task. We, when we were going outside, we've been given kind of uh, radios and, and, and ICOMs. They were called ICOMs. So at that time we were, uh, we, we could listen to, to, to the opposite side. It means Taliban. Uh, we could, we could listen their conversation and we were also translating that conversation when they're going to attack us when we were there. So that means we've been really helpful to save also Canadians in Afghanistan army uh, people lives as well. So we've been always translating those conversations were happening between Taliban's and they were like saying from which side we're going to attack them, from what side, what direction. So we were always translating that to Canadians and also telling that to Afghan National Army guys as well. And we were also going to uh, to a meetings that were happening in the district centers and in the community centers and in the village centers that we were always um, going there and especially sometimes that the Canadian officers want, wanted to talk to the village elders and stuff. We were been always translating. And, and also sometimes when there was like a blast or, or, or casualties casuality, and stuff, we were also uh, uh, translating from, from the people to the Canadian medic, medical um, mm -hmm. medics. And um, yeah, lots of tasks we've been doing and also uh, translating documents as well, like papers. Yeah, and yeah. I think I've stuff. you've told me and I've heard from another interpreter that sometimes on the radio, with you translating what the Taliban were saying to one another, sometimes you'd be able to find where they would attack from, but you could also try and find where they were planting IEDs, the improvised explosive devices, because that was what was killing many of our soldiers were those bombs planted on the roadside. So you being able to monitor what the Taliban were doing. Yes, we were basically lives. understanding the language because that they were when they were talking on their radios and we, we had those icons, those icons were used to to catch their 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 conversations and then we we always knew it that what they're going and what's their plans most of the times because taliban were like somehow they were smart too they were like using kind of codes like they had a special codes but somehow some of our smart interpreters were able to find out their codes and, and tell that the canadian forces okay these guys are going to do that and let's uh, let's cancel their plan or whatever. So these were the type of things that we were translating at, at the fail over there. Now you're from Herat province, the Shinden district in the northwest of Afghanistan. You were operating primarily in, in Kandahar. Was that difficult with different tribes or cultural practices? Um, you know, did, did you sometimes have when you're meeting with the village elders, they would say, hey, you're from somewhere else. Did that was that ever a challenge? No, that wasn't a challenge for me. That that was a challenge for probably uh, other interpreters, but for me, because I'm from the same tribe, uh, and then uh, my my grandpa or my my couple of generation ago that they moved actually from Kandahar to that part of Afghanistan. So 
So we are this, uh, like I'm a Czechzai, which is a Czechzai is like, it's the same tribe they have it in Kandahar. And I speak Pashto, like my, it's, we speak the same language. And for me, it wasn't a problem because it was, it was my own language and it was my own tribe, most of the, most of Kandahar. And, um, but yeah, some other people. Yeah. And then also, uh, the tribe was not a problem. The problem was our serving alongside with Canadians. They were always saying like, you know, because that's their, that's their kind of view of, uh, I don't know, their opinion that they were like, okay, you, since you joined these guys, you also become non-Muslim, you know, like what I, what I mean? Mm -hmm. So they were not consider you as a real Muslim. And then that's why they 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 just didn't want us to serve. They didn't want us to help Canadians or any other NATO forces people because they didn't want us to do that. So you know, it's it's just a kind of tribe was not a problem because I was speak the language. And the most most uh, bad thing was like they always like when I was going outside to 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 translate between Canadians and local national. The local were like always abusing us and telling us like lots of bad words and stuff, you know, like they um, they were like, oh, you're you're not part of us and we will kill you. Like, I mean, a few Canadian soldiers were sent like one day I remember in 2010, uh, we went to an operation in Helmand from Kandahar. It was a big operation in Helmand. So people were telling me one day we will we will cut your head. Mm -hmm. So I just I was just laughing. I was like, well, I didn't do anything wrong. So I'm here. So I'm translating whatever you saying to these, mm -hmm. these guys and whatever these guys are saying to you guys. So I didn't do anything wrong, but they were not believing that. Like they were like, no, you guys are like eyes for these guys. So that's why it was always, um, they, they looking at us not, not really good. They were like, always yeah, saying, you, we, will, we will definitely kill you or kill one of or part of your family members. So as soon as we get you and we identify you. But the thing was like, we always cover the faces. Most of us, mm -hmm. we were always covering faces, but they were still kind of identifying. I don't know how. Yeah. How, even how in, so even during the war, when you're there standing next to Canadian Armed Forces with their rifles and everything, our guys don't understand what they're saying to you, but some of them are threatening you while you're standing next to our soldiers. Yeah, yeah. Most of them were like, yeah, a lot of them were threatening me. And then I was like, I, I was telling my mentors as well, like because they had no rifles with them and they had nothing. So we couldn't do anything actually at the time, you know, like. Mm -hmm. So they were threatening me. They was like, oh, yeah, we will definitely kill if we, if we find find you. So, Did you ever get injured in any of the operations with the Canadian military, James? I got a little bit injury on my knees. But at that time, I, I in 2010, I mentioned earlier that we went to Helmand province for an operation. So in that operation... There was a, a thousands probably U.S. Army and other other NATO forces uh, uh, guys. So also there was a uh, Canadians and an Afghan National Army that we went from Kandahar to Helmand for an operation for I think that was forty days or something. I'm I'm not exactly sure how many days was that, but I remember uh, one day we got uh, we got an ambush from Taliban, and we were patrolling in, in a field so when we got ambushed a couple uh, u.s soldiers got injured and a few got died and that's because we had an ambush and, and from all over like the bullets were coming from all over like mm -hmm. like it was all bullets everywhere so so what i did it was it was a kind of little valley on the side so when we were walking when they they start firing, I saw a couple of people just fall down on, on besides me and 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 I got scared. I was like, I will get shot too. So there was a little while I I just run and I just uh, and, and I just uh dove in. Yeah, fall fall myself into that valley on my knees. So at that time my knees got injured and and, and lots of rocks and stuff went to that my knees. And and I never claimed it because at that time people were saying, "Oh, if you claim this, you may never able to get a job again." 
Mm-hmm. So, so I was scared because of the financial support I was giving to my family. You know, I was like, I, I never claimed it. And I was like, okay, I'm good. So yeah, that was a bad day. That was, a, uh, that was where I got injured. So there was many, many more other same and, stories happened. And, and some American soldiers died because Canadians were working in Helmand with some of the Americans in Helmand province and not in Kandahar for that mission. Yeah, there's a lot of people got shot over there. And and, and then after that, uh, when I was like uh, hiding in that valley because I was not trained to fight enough, you know, like I, I, I never got a deal, but I had like carrying some ammunition for, for my Canadian fellows like I was surfing with. So I had their ammunition. So I have the pictures here. Mm-hmm. At that day, I didn't get a chance to show it to you, but... Um, uh, well, yeah. I saw some of the pictures. You looked so young. Uh, yeah, I was like, those, very young. Those, now, you wore kind of a mixed uniform um, that some of it, like, did you wear partially a Canadian uniform? Did you ever have the Canadian uh, flag on to let people know you were with us? Or were you wearing a, a patchwork of stuff from the Afghan National Army? Uh, yes, definitely. Uh, I, I had those pictures. And I probably can show you now as well. Well, so, we're just we're not going to have video for the podcast, so just describe them to us. So, did yeah. you have you yeah, wear some I, of the military stuff from Canada? Uniforms that uh, not the uniforms, those pictures that I because after I were our jobs, we had to uh, we have to deliver those uh, those uniforms uh, back to Canadians because uh, you know the army rules were like giving <laughs> yeah. back the uniforms, so you were not allowed basically to take the uniform uh video so so you would have would you have the canadian maple leaf the flag on on your jacket maple leaf yes i i, I think i did a couple couple a times couple kind of <laughs> flags but I, at that time I, I i didn't know which which type of flags are like some <laughs> of the teams were like called bravo uh alpha bravo like each each unit has like a couple teams yeah and each team was uh so they'd have their patches as well from yeah they're different patches they're different uh, flags and and no i just say that because i think people need to realize that um you were literally waving the flag alongside our our troops in afghanistan and even when you were doing it translating in pashtun to uh people from your own cultural background, your old tribe, you were getting threatened then. Yeah. So um, you see this picture over here. Yeah. I am. Uh, I am on those tanks, but that uniform is uh, that uniform is awful Canadian. That brown yeah. kind of uniform. Yeah. And yeah. Then, you're wearing Canadian. Uh, yeah. Canadian combats. Yeah. No, I just say that because I think people need to realize you're not a translator like in a courthouse or in, in the House of Commons in Parliament. You, <laughs> no. You're actually out there. You're not fighting. You're not carrying a, a rifle, but you are carrying, as you said, ammunition for some of your your friends in the unit. And you were taking risks. Um, so let's now talk about your journey afterwards, James, because I, I do think it's pretty remarkable. Um, so after you stopped uh, working as an interpreter, were you worried about some of those threats that were being made while you were serving? And even before the Taliban took over Afghanistan again, were you at risk because you served with Canada? Uh, definitely, yes. Because what uh, I actually didn't stop working in 2013, at the end of 2012, I remember I was working for, for a Canadian last rot- rotation or roto that was working in, in, in Kandahar was a, uh, a French uh, roto that they were called French roto, but I wasn't sure what, what was like, uh, what was it, but all those guys were speaking French, but most of them were speaking a good English as well. So we, we stayed work with them as well. So at the last roto was in 2012. I, I, I remember I was working in a district, uh, Panjway district with the, with a major, major Steve, major Steve was, a mm, from, he was from Quebec. So I was working with him. So at the end of the, the mission, I think he told me that the mission is going to be over. 
So now the U.S. Army guys are coming over that they 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 gonna take over the base and everything. So we will be working for the U.S. Army guys as well. So yeah. So the handover, your last unit, th those would have been members of the Vandus, the Vandusiem uh, regiment. So the, our French Canadian. Uh, so they would have operated in French, but spoke to you in English, and then you spoke in Pashtun yeah, to people. Yeah, yeah, so, yeah. So three-way translation. Um, but so when the mission was ending, did, were you told that there was a program for interpreters to apply to come to Canada? Because I, the con I were conservatives told, had yeah. that program. Yeah, I were told at that time. So what happened, uh, uh, I, I was always concerned about my safety because I've been threatened by Taliban a lot with the phone calls, with the letters and all those kind of stuff. And then I, I, I noticed that they were always searching for me, even even, even like they had connection in, in a different provinces after the mission has been done and I had no jobs and not, not even interpreter, I had to change a couple of provinces. So I'm going to come back to this point. But so, yeah, when the mission got over, so what happened, uh, I think Canadians left or something happened. And then I got stayed on that base. And when the U.S. guys came, they had their own interpreters. And I think we just got out a job because they 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 had they hired their own interpreters and we we went we've been sent back to where that company was contracting uh, interpreters. So when we went there, they said, okay, no longer we don't have no longer jobs for you guys because uh, most of the forces left this part and we cannot just send lots of interpreters to the field. They have their own interpreters. So I decided to go back home. When I got home. Uh, so uh, there was always people uh, following me. There was always people trying to, to to shoot me, but I was smart and I was like, you know, I learned how to be to deal with this type of situation because we I've been working with the omelet team that we were we were teaching ANA and Afghan National Army people. For, I, I learned how to how to learn techniques and then how to hide myself. So that's why I was hiding here and there. And then a few times they were trying to kidnap my, my kid. At that time, he was a little kid. So uh, he was very small. He was, I don't know, I think he was like two, three years old. He was coming outside playing. So it, it, we, it just scared us. So after a few times moving here to different provinces here and there, here and there, uh, so I got to that point that Afghanistan is not safe for me because of my, my, my service. Uh, and and also I decided to leave Afghanistan. Yeah, let me let me jump in there because I you know that's scary when you're at risk and you've got an infant, a small toddler, your son is at risk, and this is you're back now in Herat province, so you're back home, but people there know, hey, that guy worked for the Canadians. Yeah, uh, and that's why your family, that's why you were at risk, was because they knew what you had done. It it the rumors somebody in the tribe tells tells us somebody from the Taliban and so then you're kind of on a list and you yeah, don't yeah I was when on their their top list I was like okay this guy's a, this guy's needs to go and 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 that's because after that when I got back to Herat I I start I found a little job with the USID which is which was a a, a project from the U.S. consulate or something. Um, I, I had a little part-time job with them. And then later on, I, I found that people are following me and then they have weapons. So somehow they didn't get the chance to shoot me at those points. And, 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 and I just run. Before, so before you, to... before you ran though, you did apply to the Canadian program for interpreters. Uh, how yes. did you find out about it and why weren't you accepted? I I actually did accept it. I, I, I did accept it. I, I filled the forms. And also that the last roto I mentioned, the French guys that our uh, S3, uh, uh, someone was, uh, was a logistic officer. Uh, he, uh, his name was Captain Nick. He was, a from, he was from that French roto. He signed all my documents. He recommended me for immigration to Canada because all those guys, they knew me. So, and also my previous roto, the English roto that I've been working, they also recommend me to this roto. They said, James is a nice guy and you guys take care of him and all those kind of stuff. But 
uh, I got those forms. What happened, I filled those forms and I've been recommended to immigrate to Canada. I got an interview call from, from Canadian officials and the Canadian embassy. So at that day, we went from Herat, to, well, my wife and I, we, we traveled by bus. Uh, we went there and we had, a, we had a bad time on a way going there. So we couldn't carry any documents with us. You know what I mean? Like all the certificates and all these kind of stuff. We couldn't handle any documents with us. So when, when we got to the embassy, so the officer was asking me, where's all your documents? I was like, well, I don't have any documents with me. You know, like it's it's not safe to just carry documents everywhere with you. Like on a way going from Herat or from Kandahar to Kabul, on a way at nights, the Taliban were stopping lots of buses and they were they were searching for those people who, who've been even going to school, they were like they would not let him go. So after big investigation, I was like, Are you kidding? How I can bring all those documents with me? But somehow, I think some people were able to carry documents. I'm not saying it was impossible. It probably somehow for some people it was possible, but for me it was impossible to to get those documents with me, like certificates and and yeah. from 2004 no. to 2006 you've been studying English classes, all those certificates. I said I don't have all those documents with me, so that's why they 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 just said okay Rejected you're not. You. Yeah, yeah, they rejected my uh, my interview, and then after a couple of weeks, I got an email that it says, uh, unfortunately, we were not able to issue a visa yeah. for this purpose. And then it was asking me to to get a lawyer or whatever, or if I need, just contact yeah. the immigration. And it wasn't easy for us to no, contact this, back immigration. The, and I, the reason I I raised this, James, is. I've heard so many stories like yours where, you know, they're, they're trying to prove all these certificates. They want biometrics. So they want uh, photographs, fingerprints, what have you. This is a country that's been in a state at war. And if you're carrying your certificates from the Canadian armed forces around with you and you're searched on a bus, you could be killed because you had the certificate. You, you are you, gone. Right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. And so a lot, especially since the fall of Kabul, People, even in their own homes, are burning these documents because now they're worried they'll be searched at home. And our officials at the time, or at least some of them, seemed to operate as if they were in Canada, that somebody could just go to the mall, to the Service Canada office. No, it's, show it's, it's different, yeah. Now, now, right now, we can't even deliver passports on time in Canada, let alone, let alone government services. So... You were rejected from the program, I think uh, many were, because of some of the ridiculous Western standards we had for service levels. So then you decided you had to flee Afghanistan. Uh, you were the And risk. on the top of that, sir, I, I, I tried a few times to go to Pakistan, to go to Canadian embassy. Some people were like, oh, if you can make it to Canadian embassy in Pakistan, they may listen to you. I went there a few times. Nobody even let me to go to the Canadian embassy door because... I don't know. They're like, you don't have an appointment. Just go away. And yeah. a few times I spent lots of money to go to Pakistan and just waiting, waiting, waiting there. Nobody really cares. Oh, I'm glad you added that, James, because now that's essentially what the government is saying for the 7,000 people with, with G numbers to do. Just go to Karachi, go to, go to Pakistan. So you're rejected. Your wife, you go back to Herat. You realize you're putting your family at risk. So you have to get out of Afghanistan. You started a tremendous journey. And I want you to take our listeners of the podcast through your journey. But who did you approach? There were obviously human smugglers. There were people that were helping arrange you get safe transport to, to Europe or, or Turkey. Tell us about who you went to, what you paid, and what that journey was. So... When I got to that point so that I had to leave Afghanistan and there was no point for me to stay in Afghanistan, I decided to to hide my wife. She's actually sitting over here and listening to us. She uh, uh, she's uh, I, I had to take her and my son to her father and hide them because her father was staying away from uh, from that city center and, and and i just hide these guys there i was like okay stay there 
don't let the kid go out until I get somewhere for a couple of years. It's, it's, it's probably going to be a couple of years journey, but I have to, because I have to find a safe spot and then later on work on, on, on how I can get you guys to that safety. And, and, and it's, it's not a guarantee. And then uh, I, I I had to call a couple people and 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 to ask about because I didn't know how to find a human trafficker to to take me out of Afghanistan, and I wasn't I wasn't able myself to go in and no passports like I had a passport but no visas because nobody will give you visa like Turkey Iran or, or other countries, so. I had to call a couple guys and it's like, I'm looking for, and I couldn't trust those people as well. I was scared that they may give me to Taliban. I was like, okay, this guy, yeah, just take it. So I, I had to call, find, and, and be cautious and find the right person to take me out of Afghanistan. I had to pay like 7,000 euro. That was the all income I had a couple of years. And then I have to save that money for many years and work hard for it. Like I, I paid like 7,000 euro to this a human trafficker. So he said, there is no guarantee that I can take you to Europe or anywhere. Like on a way, if you died on a way, or if you, if something happened to you, there is no, no, no promises, anything on this way that you're going, you know, that it's, it's a, it's an illegal way of going to, to some European countries. So if you die on a way, it's everything is on you. I was like, okay, no problem. At the end of the day, dying is just dying here, or it's better to die somewhere else. So take me from this country. Cause I, I just don't want to die so bad here. And that must've been, I, you know, I don't think many Canadians could even relate James. And I'm glad your wife is there with you. Um, you basically said, we're going to spend our life savings for me to take a chance to maybe make it to Europe and hopefully be able to send for you. This could take a year or two. So you stay with your father, uh, your son, you know, keep everyone under hiding with the hope that I will make it safely. That must have been very hard to do. Yeah, it was a hard decision. So we had no choice. So and then we had to pay all that amount of money to the people that we don't know. And then honestly, all that money was came to me from my interpreter that what I was doing in a field. And I could be killed easily for that $600 a monthly I was getting from the Canadian forces. Because like, as I said, I mentioned earlier, there was people being shot right in front of me because we got a couple ambushes, not even once. Every day we had to deal with firing and stuff. And yeah, I paid all that money. And then, so then they, t tell, tell people the journey. So you're in Herat province and, and what did you do? Cause when I first encountered you through Joe Warmington, the journalist, you were in Germany. So take us from Afghanistan to, <laughs> to Germany. Germany. Yeah. <laughs> Cause that's, that's a, it's a, it's a movie what you yeah. went through. So what I did, I had to call those uh, couple people and then somebody told me, okay, I know a human trafficker. He's really good at this. He's probably going to be a better weight than others. I was like, okay. So yeah, I had to pay all that money to the human trafficker. And then uh, I start walking. Uh, I mean, they, they, they give us a, a small ride from that Herat province to the border of Pakistan, like in Southern Kandahar and Ilman somewhere. So they took us to the Pakistan border over there. So after that, we start walking. So I think we walked like three days. We had like a small backpack. I had only water with me, not lots of food, but like uh, we were just keep walking. They were like, they had people on a way so when we were walking that they were giving us only like a piece of bread, like a, just nothing else, just a piece of bread on a, on a way. Like we walked for three days and then they, we, we got to a village. They said, this is like a Iran border. This is somewhere like a zero point from Pakistan to Iran. And then, and, and then we stayed there for three, four nights. They kept us in, in a very, in a dark room and nobody was like, allowed to go outside they were like oh everywhere is cops if you go out they will identify you they will send you back to afghanistan so they hide us in that room and then after a couple of days hiding in that room they they took us again 
they, they sometimes they were giving us like a small short kind of ride and and, and the pickup trucks and, and buses or or in the buses but it's not like a seat you're gonna be like in the jockey box whereas you put all your luggage they will put you there not like in the seats yeah so they put us in those jockey boxes and then and 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 a couple hundred meters or, or a couple hundred kilometers they drop us back so the story is very long it, it's gonna take a couple hours but i'm just gonna go like kind of shortly on it so yeah after a couple days from, from iran where did you go next yeah so after a couple of days walking through walking and getting short distance kind of rides from them they took us to the turkey border and the same thing couple of days in that border and then and then again it was walking it was like there was a big mountain on the border of i, I think if you google you will find that mountain i forgot the name they took us all the way to that big mountain and then like by walking and, and bringing us down that's because they say that there is no cops on the mountain though whatever mount, mount ararat was it i think so yeah it's like right on the border by iran and and, and turkey mm -hmm. it's a big mountain i don't know what they call it. i that think mountain. it might be the mountain where the where noah's ark was was found but anyway keep going yeah so you've made so, it afghanistan pakistan iran turkey yeah. walking trucks everything yeah and then we got to istanbul so when I got to Istanbul, I had no money left with me for eating or anything. And then I was like, okay, because I cannot proceed anymore like this because I had some money to spend. And then when I was talking, telling this a human trafficker, you should give us food and stuff. He was like, no, I'm sorry, I cannot. Those money is just for taking you. I was like, taking me what? You, you, we walked literally, you didn't spend anything out of that money. You should give us at least food, but they didn't accept with us. So we had to work like 12 hours, like from sunrise to sunset. They put us to work for for a Turkish guy that we were just making those uh, uh, travel luggage boxes and box and stuff. We were just uh, making those like from sun, sunrise to sunset. I worked there for six months to, to just save a little small amount of money to spend it on a way going to Germany. So, yeah, after a couple of months working in, in Turkey, illegally working in Turkey, had a really bad days. Uh, most of the days, not even finding a food to eat. Like we had to go and find food, like from, you know, asking people like if they can just give us a food. But most of the time people will reject you. Okay, we don't have food. There's tons of immigrants in this country, we're, like refugees, who are we gonna get food? And, so they they said okay you guys need to be ready we're gonna send you to to greece so they put like 50 or 60 people in a in a kind of boat that i don't think if you can fit like 10 or 15 people it will just go under the water they put like 50 or 60 people in that boat and then uh, i went there too and then i had no choice so on a way crossing that mediterranean sea to greece the boat got broken on the water, like that the the machine that the uh, the thing that moving the the boat it got Propeller, broken. Yeah, yeah. yeah, it got broken. We had to stack for for many hours, many hours in that water. So we were lucky that the boat was stable; it didn't go under the water. So suddenly, some of these guys were some of the guy were were mechanic or whatever. He fixed that problem with the machine after a couple hours working on that so we just got so lucky he fixed it we stuck a couple hours in the water when he fixed it we started again the journey toward greece so very close like a kilometer or so mm -hmm. to to the uh, to the beach that the tank got broken again and then there was no people and there was it was a night it was a dark night and raining and you know like especially when you it's night and you are in the water and, and it's, it's windy it's so bad so when i when i realized that it, it's just super close it's like a kilometer or so I, I i'm very good at swimming so i had to jump out of that boat and swim for a for a kilometer you know it was very hard to make it but i made it so i got myself to the beach and what island were you on? 
It was Lesbos, I think. Lesbos, okay. Uh, yeah. Lesbos Island, yeah. So I got to Lesbos Island. And then, and then where from there? So you've been walking, so when trucking, I got, swim, yeah. boating, swimming. Yeah, it was a it was a tough journey. So and then when I got to that island, and then it was dark. Nobody was on the street, so I I I had to uh, uh, walk on the road. So when I was walking on the road, then the cops shows up. It's like, oh, where are you going? And I was start speaking English with them. They say, oh, you speak English. I was like, yeah. So they take me to jail or something. I think it was a jail. They put me in that jail for 72 hours. And then it wasn't that bad. They give me water and food. <laughs> and then they release me after. And then they give me a paper. They said, you have one month to leave Greece. So I had that one month. And then I was, um, I was able to get a ticket with that and just go to Aten because Aten was so far from Lesbos Island. Mm-hmm. And then when I got to Athens, and then I, and then the a human trafficker called me, hey, you're in Athens? I was like, yeah. So then he picked us up again. He, he took us to Macedonia border. Well, so walking in the same thing, trains and stuff, we, we had to cross Macedonia. We had to cross Serbia and we had to cross Hungary. Then in Hungary, we got arrested again. We, we've been put in the jail for a couple of days. And in uh, and, and a refugee camp, that it was like a closed kind of camps. They will not allow you to go outside. They will just give you some food and you're just going to stay there. And then uh, when they released us from that, then we again start walking toward Austria. So we went to Austria. So, and then from Austria, I, I got, I actually got arrested in Austria as well. Like, cause you're, when you are an illegal immigrant, everybody's gonna arrest you. It's like, where's your document? I don't have document. Okay, just come with us. But at least these, these people were like, these cops were nicer than any other country forwarder. Like any country you can forward, the cops were getting nicer and nicer. You know? <laughs> as you're so. getting closer to democracy, you're, <laughs> so. you're, you're actually, you said the jail in, in Lesbos wasn't that bad because you had food and water and uh, the journey. Well, I mean, it on. wasn't that like super good food. It was just a piece of bread and some, uh, some um, butter on it. Yeah. And, and a bottle of water. That's a lot, man. Like when you're in a situation like what, that kind of situation, that, that helps a lot. So you so from Austria then to Germany, and you had a cell phone. So you 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 said the human. Honestly, I I found that cell phone in one of the forests in in, in Turkey. I was walk. I was so lucky though. Like I was walking, and then I don't know. I found a brand new phone in a in a in a in a car. It was never used. That was Samsung phone that you can you you could use Facebook. I was able to open my Facebook on that. So, yeah, when I got to Germany, um, uh, so when I got released from that kind of uh, closed kind of camp uh, from Australia, I decided to go to Germany because everybody was like, Germany is a nice country. They will bring your family and stuff. I was hoping to bring my family. I was That was the only hope. I, was, I, I just can't bring my family to me and, and no matter any country that I could go. So when I got to Germany on a way that I, I, I've been in contact with a lot of people here in Canada as well. They they knew they knew me. Like, you know, they the the soldiers that mm-hmm. I served with them. Like Herrick, one day I was sitting in a camp and at that time Germany told me I had a fingerprints in a couple of countries. They won't accept me as a refugee and all those kind of stuff. They said they will deport me. I was so scared and I had a really bad uh, bad day at that day. So suddenly Eric called me or I did call Eric. Uh, Eric Kirkwood, he was he was from Pitatawa Regiment, I think. Uh, yeah, from Regiment, yeah, yeah. Pitatawa Regiment. Yeah, the yeah. RCR. Yeah, he he called he called me or I called him. I was like, he's like, what's up? You were just around. I was like, you don't know about my situation. He knew it how I've been dealing with the tough situation in Afghanistan. So when 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 we were talking, I said. Well, I need your help, bro. If, if if it's possible, please help me to get out of this this situation. And then he was like, uh, can I call you back? I was like, okay, yeah, you can call me back. So I think after he hang up, he, he was reached out to uh, uh, Joe Warmington that he was uh, from Toronto Sun. Mm-hmm. So I think he reached out uh, Joe Warmington and thanks to Joe Warmington, he he, he raised my, my story on the news. 
and then lots of people become aware and yourself become aware of this situation and and, and also thank you and thanks to joe warmington and and well and oh, eric, eric yeah the, eric. The, the soldier you served with yeah and joe warmington and joe yeah i spoke to and i will give credit as i said i went by then the conservatives had lost and the program for interpreters was closed from the afghanistan war for a couple of years but i spoke to john mccallum and he did the right thing you were at that point in a camp in germany and once the minister agreed to move on your case, you were here in Canada within, I think, three months, two months. Yeah, it 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 does. It didn't took too long though. Like I think it just took a couple months um, to to get the paperwork and everything done. Like you know, and then your family a couple months later. So that is an amazing story, James. Like that. So you must have lost weight. You must have been like partially starving like on the way um you walked swam you yeah know. trust me i'm still not getting weight stats because probably of that hard journey was <laughs> well you you're you're in good shape and you work so hard now how you so you worked in turkey illegally for six months you had to stay in these safe houses and things like this how long was the journey from the day you left afghanistan till the day you got to Canada and reunited with your family. Was that a year and a half or was that a year? It was a year. I would say it was a year, more than seven months and uh, more than seven to eight months, more than that, but it wasn't less than this. Cause I, 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 uh, I start going there like in early 2014. And then I got there like in, in probably May 2015 in Germany. Well, I hope in a few years, your son's only 11. I hope when he's 15 or 16, he listens to this podcast or you tell him that story because you will, if you're not already his hero, you'll be his bigger hero because you were courageous and brave and you persevered to give them a better life. And um, what inspires me about your story, James, is you had to embark on that journey. You had to become a, a, a nomadic refugee uh, because your help to Canada put your life at risk and your family's life at risk. And I really want Minister Fraser, who is a father and I think a very good person, to show some leadership like John McCallum did. A minister can decide to move forward. A government can decide to move forward because we've got 7,000 plus still in Afghanistan facing the same risks you did. And people shouldn't have to go on a journey halfway across the Middle East and, and Europe for freedom. Um, you've talked to a lot of folks in the community. People must be worried about the people that are left behind in Afghanistan because now the Taliban controls all parts of life. Yeah, unfortunately, I still have a few uh, fellows that I, I think I, I mentioned you earlier also that uh, they're still left behind in Afghanistan. And then they still, trust me, the other day, one of those guys were asking me how I can make it like you. I was like, it's impossible because... Right now, that Turkey border is closed, and you don't want to take that risk I took at that time. I'm not recommending any any kind of that uh, thing, and 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 I try to kind of find any help that I can do from this side. He was he was an interpreter that I also I also send her documents to to your office. Yeah, but yeah. somehow I'm not able to do any inquiries about uh, to, not a, not I'm not able to apply for him behind him because behalf of him because the immigration website wants me to do like a, a representative kind of forms and then i had to send them to him and he's kind of fill it up yeah. and yeah he has to give consent to you to advocate yeah, yeah no i look we're going to try our best to get people moving and get them back here um, because when you were doing your incredible journey you were probably caught up with the Syrian migration. Like you were in the camps, there was the, the big Yeah, I was Syrian. exactly at the same yeah. time. At the same time, sorry, you were talking. Well, and this is what you. Canadians remember. 
uh, the tragic case of, of a young boy named Alan Curdy, a young boy who his boat to Greece. So actually, that boat happened at two days before me, like before I crossed that that Mediterranean Sea, those guys been found dead. That that those days I was like close to that point. Yeah, so. no, and and that broke a lot of hearts. Um, I remember at the time my son was about the same age, and just the the lifeless body of this young boy on a beach, and so Canada accelerated its support for the Syrian refugees, and you were just caught up in a lot of that. But you were a refugee. Um, not because of just conflict. You were a refugee because your help to Canada put you at risk. And I don't like comparing suffering or or risk, but whenever Canada places someone in danger because you helped us, you should be at the top of the list, in my view, because you represented our values. You you got hurt serving with us. You, you wore our uniform. And so... Um, We've got some work that we're doing with the Veterans Transition Network, you know, the group of interpreters and, and Afghan Canadians that we met in Vancouver. Um, we can, if there's political will, get a lot of these 7,000 back to Canada in the next two to three months, um, because we can't let more people risk journeys like yours, because as you said, it's much more dangerous now than when you went. Yes, that's true. So yeah, at that time when 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 I was stuck in that camp in Germany, it was kind of close camp in Germany, and then uh, I was stuck there. And I was talking to Eric. Honestly, I mentioned that I was like, I heard because at those days there was a thousands and thousands refugees were coming to Canada. I was like, bro, I I served with you guys for probably more than seven years or something. I don't know. And, 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 you know, what I've been doing with you guys, like, I think, like, honestly, I think I should be coming to Canada as well. Why I'm just like, why I'm stuck here. Why, why nobody really cares. So these were the type of uh, uh, talk that I, I, I talked to Eric that it got his, his tension. And he was like, yeah, that's true. Why you are not here? Why nobody cares about this? And then that's why he decided to call Joe Warmington and then and then also Joe Warmington got involved and he brought the story up. So Yeah. No, I, it's I, I, it well, Eric uh, is a good Canadian for doing that. And we cannot leave anyone behind that is facing risks for themselves and their family because they helped our country. It I certainly don't think it's it's very Canadian to to act like that. Um, and I don't want to make this political. I want to see Minister Fraser do uh, a similar thing to Minister McCallum, which is show a little initiative, show a little compassion. Don't settle for the status quo that a couple of bureaucrats will say you can't do it this way. It's never been done this way. Get it done. And as you showed, you can't just easily cross to Pakistan to go get biometric testing. Any travel, particularly any travel where you might be bringing documents to show that you helped Canada, that puts lives at risk. So we really need a, a way to help people in the country, and we need to to safeguard their return to Canada as quickly as possible. Um, and so hopefully telling your story, James, and now you, your wife is, um, her English is improving, you're raising your, your kids, you know, you're, you're an important, productive member of our society, you just somebody gave you a chance to get here. And I think the 7,000 waiting in Afghanistan deserve that same chance. Um, do you have any advice for the government or any final thoughts uh, before we wrap up the podcast? Well, the the thing I, I just want to ask the government, if, if, if they want to, if they want to do something, they should uh, act on that as 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 fast as they can because, you know, I um, as I mentioned, I know a couple of these guys that they've been stuck over there that they've been serving also alongside with the Canadian forces. They were interpreters myself. I know them closely. That they are in the same situation as me. Like before they they get killed or they 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 be night because the guy the other day was I was talking to him he was like uh well they are they are still looking for people 
and then they also ban people to 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 put that in media they still doing they still killing people they still uh, torture people and, and and you know like uh going nights and and and, and search their houses and and looking for for kind of documents and stuff and then they are not allowing the media to do so i just want to ask the government if if they want to do something please act on that as as soon as possible or do it as 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 soon as you can and and you know because it's it's not safe they they are just acting oh afghanistan is safe but i don't think if it's safe because i i I, daily we are talking to people and we, we know that it's not safe and uh, move fast because life lives are at risk right lives are at risk exactly yeah and 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 kids are at risk women's are at risk i mean we need that we need some action we need some action yeah well listen james thank you very much for showing and sharing your story on the blue skies political podcast uh you literally did show your story because you did get up and get a photo uh, of you in a Canadian uniform on a tank in in Afghanistan. Thank you for your service alongside our men and women in uniform in Kandahar province. Um, You know, that day you were were injured in Helmand province. Um, You showed great bravery and you showed a commitment to our country and our soldiers. And I'm glad Eric and and some of the people you served with, French Canadian, English Canadian, um, also helped get you here. Thanks to Joe Warmington as well. Um, so thank you. I look forward to seeing you again. We had a good lunch when I was in BC. And I really hope to be able to tell your son one day what a remarkably brave father he has in James Akam. And your story to, to coming to Canada is inspiring. So thank you, James. Thank you, sir. It was a great pleasure, and 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 just I I'm not sure if Eric and Joe Armington is is watching us or hearing us right now. I I just want to thank those two, especially Eric. He was the person that he brought this up, and and also thank you so much to you that uh, you solved it. Uh, a really big thing that you know because of you guys are I'm here today, and you know. And, and and I have a successful life here too. And, I, you know, it's the past couple of years, as I mentioned, I've been doing two jobs. I have a, it was a great opportunity and, and I appreciate that opportunity and, and thank you. No, thank you, Eric, Joe Warmington and the Honorable John McCallum. As I said, I, I heard your story, spoke to, to Joe um, and I said to John McCallum, we need to move, and he moved. And so this isn't about uh, blue or red. This is about doing the right thing. And with 7,000 people at risk in Afghanistan now because they helped our country, we owe it to them to act swiftly. Uh, what an inspiring Blue Skies political podcast today. We've had a tough two years for our country. We've had some restrictions. We've had some job losses. We have inflation. We have the problems of a developed world, first world problems, we might call them. There's a lot of talk about freedoms and and restrictions and limitations. Think for a moment about James Akam, serving alongside the Canadian Armed Forces, leaving his family for over a year, a journey from Afghanistan, Pakistan, Iran, Turkey, working illegally for six months to pay for the next trip to Greece, Macedonia, Hungary, Austria, Germany, to get to Canada, walking, buses, trucks, boats, swimming for freedom. That is an inspiring story and reminds us how truly blessed we are as Canadians. And our commitment to freedom and liberty should be making sure that we never leave anyone behind that are at risk because they served with our soldiers, they helped our diplomats, they helped us deliver aid. Canada is a force of good in the world. And if people are helping us do that good, we never should leave them behind. So I'd ask listeners to share this podcast, share James's story, (laughs) celebrate what we have here as Canadians, and email the Minister of Immigration, Minister Fraser, who I know is a good Canadian and wants to do the right thing. We need some leadership here, and we're not seeing it. And there are solutions to get these people here faster. We shouldn't leave them at risk. 
So this is an important, a very poignant, and a very personal Blue Skies political podcast today. If you have any questions on this podcast, any suggestions for a new one, any criticisms or or praise, all are welcome. Send me an email, send me a note through social media, but please share this podcast. Rate this on your favorite podcast platform, share James's story, and make sure you recommit to building the Canada that we want to see, a Canada that doesn't leave people like James behind. Let's bring the folks home from Afghanistan. Let's see some leadership. Minister Fraser, it's over to you. I'm Aaron O'Toole, Member of Parliament for Durham. Thank you very much for tuning in and blue skying this important issue with us today. 